Hello, and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. We may think that honoring our parents is easy, but like all the commandments, it goes deeper than that. Teaching team member Caleb Click continues the series, The Ten Commandments, with this sermon entitled, Honor Your Father and Mother, which covers Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Well, good morning, Perimeter. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up with me to Exodus chapter 20. And before we we dig in and read the text, I need to call your attention to something because you're going to think something's a little bit weird if you've paid attention just a little bit to this series. Uh, Today, instead of being on the fourth commandment, which logically comes after the third, uh, we're going to be on the fifth commandment. And the reason for this is because uh, the fourth commandment, the Sabbath day commandment, is one that is very near and dear to our founding pastor, Randy Pope's heart, and we wanted him to have a chance to preach that. And the only weekend he was available is not this one, but next one. So next week, we're going to do the fourth commandment. This week, we're going to do the fifth commandment, which means we're a little bit out of order, but I think it's going to be okay. So we're going to read this now, starting in verse 1, so we can remember where we've come from before we get to where we are today in verse 12. Here's what it says. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third on the on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments you shall not take the name of the lord your god in vain for the lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain remember the sabbath day to keep it holy Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourn of the immigrant who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving to you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. O Lord, by this we know that we abide in you and you in us, because you have given us of your spirit together. Abide with us as we worship you today. And may your spirit illumine our hearts and minds that we might know and love you more deeply. Amen. Father, I pray you would come. Lord, where my words are not of you, would you let them fall to the ground? Lord, where they are of you, Lord, I pray that you would make them the double-edged sword that they are, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit and bone and of marrow. And would you give us eyes to see from this text beautiful things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Some of you may have heard the name Viktor Frankl. Uh, He was a Jewish survivor of the Holocaust who wrote a book that made him world famous, a book called Man's Search for Meaning. But in 1940, Viktor Frankl was just a young man faced with a massive decision. He was a Jew living in Nazi-controlled Austria, and he knew that while he was still free at that moment, that it was only a matter of time before he and his family were taken to the camps. And he had been given a way of escape. The United States, because he had a PhD and he was a doctor and was doing research, they had offered him a visa and the ability to come to the States to get out of Austria. And so he could get out of all the things that were coming, but, but Viktor Frankl wasn't sure if he should go because to go to America would mean to leave behind his parents. And his parents, his parents were telling him that he should go, but he couldn't make up his mind because he could not figure out where his responsibility lay. Was it to himself and to his wife and to his future? Or was it to stay behind and to protect his parents as best he could, come what may? And then one day, Viktor Frankl came home and sitting on his kitchen table, was a burned piece of marble, a fragment from a synagogue that the Nazis had burned down, a piece of the Ten Commandments, and written on that piece of marble was this, honor thy father and thy mother that you may live long in the land. And Viktor Frankl said he saw that and he knew what he had to do. So he stayed, and everything he feared happened. His parents died in the camps, and while he survived, he experienced things that he could never quite shake. I read that story a few months ago, and it unsettled me because Frankel took seriously something that I think very few of us do, including myself. I mean, we, we hear this command, honor thy father and thy mother, coming as it does at the beginning of all these commands about what it looks like to love our neighbor. And if we're honest, it's, it's the one that seems kind of out of place, doesn't it? Not murdering someone makes sense. That that's, seems pretty positive. Not, not stealing makes sense, but why is this one here? It doesn't seem as serious. It doesn't seem as significant. And in fact, if, if we're really being honest, when we come to a command like this with its implications, it's one that doesn't feel like it's giving us life. It's one that feels like it's taking it away. And this is embedded in our cultural DNA, isn't it? Because what kind of people do we celebrate in our culture? It's not the ones who submit to authority and conform to expectations. It's who? It's the rebel. It's the person who goes their own way and paves their own path. It's the Ferris Buellers who escape their parents and their teachers so they can have their day off and experience life to the full. But the song that is everywhere ringing out in our ears and in our hearts is that true life and true happiness and true joy, it's not found in submission to authority or by being bound in relationships. It's by escaping them. 
They are these things that we tolerate so long as they don't get in the way of the things that we desire and the things that we want. And yet, here in this text, God God takes this thing that we treat as frivolous and he treats it with the utmost seriousness. I want you to notice two things. One, God gives this command a place of primacy. In the six commandments that have to do with love of neighbor, this is the very first one. Love of neighbor doesn't begin with the command not to kill, not to steal, or not to commit adultery. Love of neighbor, God says, it begins in the home. With that most fundamental of relationships, that between a parent and their child, a relationship that if you've got a belly button, guess what, you're in it. And it is a relationship, it is a command that doesn't just stay in the home, it spills over into all of life. One that applies not just to some relationships, but as the Westminster Larger Catechism reminds us, to all of them. To those where we have been entrusted with authority, to those where we are under authority, and in those where we are equals. And the second thing is this. God says this command is a matter of life and death. Embrace this command, and what is it that we receive? Life in the land. Despise it? As Exodus 21 reminds us twice, to despise it is to invite death. What's happening And I think the answer is this. It's that the way we respond to this command and the way that we engage with our human relationships, it is ultimately a reflection of the way that we respond to God himself. Because what is it that God has done both in the Exodus and in the Gospel? He has brought his people out of slavery in Egypt and us out of slavery to sin and death to be what? His children. And what is it that as his children this father so desperately wants to give us? Life. Life as we were intended to live it. Life as he now offers it to us in Christ. This command, it's an invitation to step into the world of the gospel and to experience the life that God created us to live. But the first question we have to ask is what in the world does it mean to honor someone? I mean, this is a Hebrew word that means to glorify or to give weight to someone or something. And the implications of this, uh, they're manifold, but today I'm I'm just gonna hit two. And the first one is simply this, to honor someone is to listen to them. And I don't mean the mere reception of words, that you you heard what I said, you computed it, and then you just kind of cast it aside. No, the listening that the scripture speaks of when it comes to this relationship It is to listen to the voice of others in order to discern the voice of God. Which means we listen with humility, with a willingness to be taught, and we listen not as those who are going to go our own way, but as those who are willing to submit to the leading 
of others. And this command, it's not just a whisper in the scriptures, it's a shout. I mean, I'm just going to scratch the surface, and I want you just to hear just the weight of all of these texts. Proverbs 1.8, hear, my son, listen, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. You're not just to hear it, you're to respond to it. Ephesians 6.1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Ephesians 5.22, again, it goes further than just the home, further than just children and parents. It speaks to marriages. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. It goes out to our jobs. Ephesians 6.5, bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling as you would Christ. It extends to the church, to our submission to, to leadership and to pastors and to elders. Hebrews 13.17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. It applies to our relationship with governing authorities. 1 Peter 2, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Whether it be the emperor as supreme or the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Now, I'm gonna stop there. I mean, this is just a tiny little fragment of the weight of this is all over the pages of Scripture. And I mean, if you're like me, you hear that and you just want to crawl out of your skin. I mean, there's a part of me that kind of wants to do that thing that Kimbe Mutombo would do when he blocked his shot and go, no, 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 no. I mean, I mean, some of you are sitting out there and thinking, you know, this is everything I feared Christianity would be. It is oppressive and it is confining. It is trying to bind me down. And here's what I think we need to say. There are some reasons to resist this that are legitimate. We're going to get to those in just a second. But many of our reasons for resisting this are not. And here's why. Why has God given this command? Why over and over and over again does God keep coming back to this same thing that we are to listen with humility, to, to listen with the intent to obey to those that God has placed in these relationships of authority with us? Why is this a thing? And the answer, it is simply this. He has given this command for the same reason he gave his son. Because he loves us. And as the perfect father, he would give his children good gifts. Why does God give you parents? It's not because he doesn't want you to experience the best in life. It's because in that moment when you are least able to care for yourself, when you can't feed yourself, protect yourself, or do anything to provide for yourself, you would be in the hands of those who could give you the things you need. And not only would you get those things, but as Proverbs 22 says, you would be trained up in the way that you should go. So that when one day you leave your parents' home, you would be able to flourish in the world. Why does God give us employers? I mean, there's a basic reason it's that we would have food in our bellies and clothes on our back and shelter over our heads, but there's also the reality that it's the way that we get to be a part of work that's bigger than something that we could do on our own. The kind of coordinated work that requires multiple people with multiple gifts working in concert together for a greater good. 
Why does God give us authorities in the church? Ephesians 4 says, so that we would be equipped for the work of ministry and the body of Christ would be built up. Or as Hebrews 13 says, that we would have someone to care for our souls, to protect us from spiritual evil, and to point us to spiritual good. Why does God give us governing authorities? Because we live in a world broken by sin. A world where there is evil. I mean, we're seeing it all over our news screens right now with what we're seeing between Israel and Hamas, aren't we? And why has God given us governing authorities? To punish evil. To protect us from evil. And to praise those things that are good. All those relationships, marred as they are by sin, they are still God's ordained means for our good. They are expressions of God's kindness wherein as our Father in heaven, he disciplines us and protects us and provides for us. And we honor those people who've been placed in those roles, not because of who they are as individuals, not because we particularly like them, not because they're giving us exactly what we want. We honor them because of the one they represent, our Father in heaven. They may not be God, but they are God's gift. But here's the catch. We don't always experience those things as gifts, do we? I mean, I, I can't speak for everyone in the room, but I can speak for myself. There have been moments when I have experienced these very things, not as blessings, but as curses. That those moments when the very people who've been entrusted with authority and who are supposed to care for you have become those who abuse that authority and care only for themselves. And some of you, you have felt that even in the most personal and intimate of relationships, that between you and your parents. And so that question comes, how do we honor how do we honor those earthly institutions in those moments when they are acting towards us not with the care of parents but instead as our enemies? How do we respond when what they are seeking is not our good but our hurt? How do we respond when they are calling us not to what is good but what to what is evil? And Jesus, Jesus gives us an answer. He says, we listen with gentleness and with humility, but there are moments, there are moments when we not only do not have to obey, but we should not obey. With the command, Jesus gives a caveat. He says in Matthew 10, do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword, for I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, on the surface... That sounds like Jesus just dismissed the entirety of Exodus 2012. 
But that's not what Jesus is doing, is he? Jesus is actually expressing the principle that sits at the very heart of Exodus 20:12. Because what did we say this command is ultimately about? In honoring our earthly parents, we are honoring who? Our heavenly parent. Which means ultimately that command, it is not about allegiance to earthly things, it is about allegiance to only one, our Father who is in heaven. The God who has adopted us into his family in Christ, and while we listen, we need to do so knowing this, sometimes their voice and God's voice, they are not the same. And that tells us two very important things. One, it speaks to those who are under authority. We are to listen to those voices only so far as they are honoring to the voice of our Heavenly Father. Our ears are to listen for God's voice and theirs, but when those voices come into conflict, it is God's voice that must reign in his alone. And as Ephesians 6.1 says, we obey only in the Lord. You know, Calvin, Calvin gets a bad rap sometimes as being kind of an authoritarian, but he, he puts this super bluntly. He says this, he says, if your parents, if our parents spur us to transgress God's law, we have a perfect right to regard them not as parents, hear this, but as strangers who are trying to lead us away from obedience to our true father. So should we act toward princes, lords, and every kind of superior. He says, whatever the institution, no matter how small or how great, if it calls you to deny Christ by either destroying what he loves or denying what he commands, then not only do you not have to obey, not only do you not have to sit by, you should not. Obedience to Christ sometimes means resisting those very authorities that have been placed over you because you are submitting to the greater authority of the one who has saved you in Christ. And you see this all over the scriptures. It's why the prophets don't just sit by and nod their heads at the injustice of the kings, but instead call out against it. It's why when the, uh, the religious authorities are telling the early church to shut up about the gospel, the early church does what instead? They just shout it all the louder. It's why in World War II, when the Nazis invaded France and they came to the little village of La Chambon sur Lignon, and my French is terrible, so that was awful, and they demanded that the villagers hand over the Jews in their community, that community was right to not only refuse to do so, but to hide the Jews instead. Because the authority calling for their obedience was an illegitimate authority because it was calling them to disobey the only one who deserved their ultimate allegiance. Now, we need to be really careful here because if your heart's like mine, we want to make the exception the rule, don't we? This is not, what we're talking about here is not the same as the time of your curfew or whether or not you should pay your taxes or whether or not you should abide by your company's dress code, okay? Those are preference issues. This is something that God reserves for those moments when the choice is between Jesus and that thing. 
And it's telling. It's telling of our hearts that so often we conform in the areas where we should resist and we resist in the areas where we should submit, isn't it? But it doesn't just speak to those under authority. It also speaks to those who've been entrusted with authority. Because if we are supposed to submit as to the Lord, that means we are also to lead in the manner that reflects the Lord. Which means we don't get to lord our authority over others like the rest of the world does, does it? We don't get to use that authority to put people under our thumb and to press them down. We don't get to use it to seek our own gain. No, instead, as Jesus says in Matthew 20, the one who would be the greatest in my kingdom must become the what? The slave of all. Why? Because that's who Jesus became. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that begs a very serious question. Because if there is one thing that God takes even more seriously than dishonoring authority, it's the abuse of authority. As as Jesus says in Matthew 18, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea, which it should lead us to ask, as those who all in some form or fashion have been entrusted with authority, does our leadership reflect God's own? In our leading, in the things we call others to obey, are we doing so in a way that seeks their good or that seeks our good? Are we doing so in a way that leads them towards life or strips it from them? Are we doing so in the way that loves and cares for them in their need even as God loves and cares for us and ours? Are we doing so in a way instead that serves only ourselves? I mean, this command is already getting kind of heavy, isn't it? It's one of those that as you begin to listen, you begin to realize this is not one that you can keep in your own strength, and it doesn't stop here, it just keeps going. Not only does honoring mean listening, it means caring. And what's interesting is, you know, this is not maybe the first place we would go when we hear this text, but this was probably the primary emphasis of this text when it was first given. It was the need for adult children, not little children, adult children to care for their aging parents. I mean, remember what I said about Viktor Frankl at the start. Why did Viktor Frankl stay? His parents were saying go. Why did Viktor Frankl stay behind instead? Because he felt that his responsibility was to the parents who had raised him and loved him and provided for him, and he could not abandon them in their time of need because he cared. And we tend to miss this because our culture feels so radically different from the one this text originally speaks to. You know, think about how we operate. You know, we we think of children and parents as this thing that lasts for 18 years. You grow up in the house, you get out the doors, and then you go into separate houses and you leave separate lives, you go into different states and different cities, and you see each other, you love each other, but you're not bound together 
as tightly as you once were, were you? Well, at this time, guess whose house you lived in all your life? You lived with your parents and your grandparents under the same roof the whole time. We have all these things that provide for us as we age. We have retirement homes where people can be cared for with medical care and, and community. We have retirements and pensions and social security. This is an age where none of those things exist. Your children were quite literally your life raft when you aged. And if they did not care for you in your old age as you cared for them when they were young, you died. God is calling his people to care for those who are aging at the moment when they are the most vulnerable. And just as we said earlier, that command starts in the home, it also spreads out everywhere else too. It extends not just to the people in our house, it extends into all of society. And Old Testament scholars like Christopher Wright say that this command, it's the cornerstone for God's vision for a just society. You know, we think of justice as punishing evil and then uh, encouraging good. The, the biblical vision of justice is bigger than that. Justice in the scriptures, it includes how we, both as individuals and as a community, care for the most vulnerable around us. Over and over and over again in the Old Testament, who is God urging his people to care for? The sojourner, the immigrant, the widow, and the orphan. Why? Because they are the least able to care for themselves. And he links, he links the way we respond to them with the way we are actually responding to himself. In Ezekiel 22, God is castigating Israel. He is ripping into them because he says they have blood on their hands, and then he begins to explain why they have blood on their hands. He says in verses six to eight that they have despised their parents, they have despised the sojourner, the immigrant, they have not cared for the widow, they have not cared for the orphan, and notice how all of those are linked together. And then he adds one that doesn't seem to make sense, but somehow in God's mind is intimately connected. He says you have blood on your hands because you've desecrated my Sabbaths. That's not a connection we would think of, is it? But then in Leviticus 19, we see the same thing. God says, what does it mean to be holy? That you revere your father and your mother and keep my Sabbaths, for I am the Lord your God. God gives these distinct commands, and yet he knits them together in a way where they are inseparable, where to break the one is to break the other, and to keep the one is to keep the other. And you see this play out in the ministry of Jesus. I mean, what's the central conflict all through the Gospels as Jesus interacts with the religious leaders? It's that Jesus keeps caring for the needy and the religious leaders are getting mad. Why? Because he's doing it on what day? The Sabbath. He's healing the sick. He's healing the lame. 
He's defending those who are hungry and are picking grain like his disciples. He's giving rest to God's people on the day of rest because that was God's design. And the Pharisees, they're getting angrier and angrier and angrier because they have elevated one command above another. And Jesus keeps saying to them, God loves mercy and not sacrifice. And the Pharisees are getting revealed as those who claim to love God, but whose hearts are actually very far from him because in failing to love the people around them, they are failing to love God himself. And it comes to a head in Mark chapter 7. And it, and it comes down to the very command we're talking about here. The Pharisees are castigating Jesus' disciples because they're not keeping the ceremonial washings that God didn't come up with, but the Pharisees did. They're mad that they're breaking their own laws. And Jesus comes to them, and he points out this thing they're doing that exposes their hypocrisy. They're telling people this thing that sounds super pious. Give all your money to the temple, even if it means you don't have anything left to care for your parents. And you can hear it, right? I love God so much, I just have nothing left to give. And Jesus, in verse 9, he says this in response. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your own tradition. For Moses said, here's the command, honor your father and your mother. And here's the penalty. Whoever reviles father or mother, who doesn't care for them in their need, must surely die. To fail to love the ones God loves is to fail to love God himself. To fail to care for those in need is to fail to care for the one who has loved us in our need. This command, it is invitation into a community that is absolutely unlike any other one that is bound together with the cords of love, where we give honor and receive honor, where we serve and we are served, where we care for the needy and are cared for when we ourselves are in need. It is a community, the community that is envisioned is one that is overflowing with the grace and the compassion and the mercy of God. And here's the great irony. We think that it's in escaping this command that we find happiness and peace and life and freedom. What God is saying in this command, it's no, you find those things right here. And how do we enter in? Not by approaching this command in our own strength. We enter in by approaching it in and through Jesus Christ. Because here's the truth. Who here in this room, after hearing this, can raise your hand and say, yeah, I've kept this? Israel couldn't. It's why they went away into exile with their bloody hands. I can't. I mean, I look at my heart and I look at myself as a father and as a son and as a pastor. I failed this command on almost every term. I mean, even this week, we're trying to sell our house and I'm raging at my kids because they're making things dirty that I have to clean up again. 
And if we approach this command on our own, it's not going to bring life, it's going to bring death. So what do we do? We turn to the one who gave the law, the one who is worthy of all of our honor, the perfect father whose words, unlike our words, are always life-giving words, and we let his life-giving law lead us to the feet of the word of life himself, Jesus Christ, the Son. Because who is Jesus? He is the Son of God who had all authority in heaven and on earth and yet never abused it. Who didn't use it for his own gain. He didn't use it to put us under his thumb and demand that we bow, but instead came in the form of a servant to take our sins on his shoulders so that our bloody hands might be clean ones. He's the one who honored his earthly father and mother from his first breath to his last and did so even though they were sinners and he was not. The one who never sacrificed his allegiance to his heavenly father but constantly said, not my will but yours be done, even when that will meant death on a cross. Not for his sins but for ours. He's the one who embodies the heart of God. Because unlike the Pharisees who elevated sacrifice over mercy, who is Jesus? He shows his mercy in his sacrifice. That's the Jesus who calls to us from this text. Because how do we experience not death but life in this command? By gazing not on ourselves, and not on our sin, but on him, the one who fulfilled that law in our place and who bore its curse in our place and who now presents us before the Father as the holy people we never were, who now pours out his spirit so that we would not only know that we are God's children, but we would also live like God's children. He is the door through whom we enter the land and he is the vine by which we flourish in it. And so to this command, there's just one response. It's to come to him. It's to lay our sins and our failures at his feet, knowing, knowing that there is more mercy in him than there is sin in us. And what we are not now one day he will make us to be. Not in our power, but in his. There is life, but it is only by faith in him. Amen. Gracious Father, what a gift to be able to call you by that name. To know, Lord, that you are a God who gives good gifts and there is no greater gift that you could have given but your son. Would you grip our hearts? Would you grip our affections, Lord? Would you open our eyes to the true life that is offered to us here, Lord, in and through your Son? And would you make us those who more and more are willing and able, desirous, Lord, of not just hearing these words but obeying them, that we would experience just a foretaste of that kingdom to come where honor is given and honor is received and the needy they all receive everything they require. Would you do this in Jesus' precious name? Amen. 
You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.